the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, an online intuition development course. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and this week my guest is J.B. McKinnon, author of The Once and Future World, Nature as It Was, As It Is, As It Could Be. I connected with James via Skype. He was at his home in Vancouver, B.C. So James, my experience when I go out into nature is that it can often be really an intense experience, a really intense confrontation with myself, and especially when I come across animals. Like, I can't see an eagle without feeling like it's a personal message for me from the universe. And I've heard this from a few other people, um, that nature can be a really profound experience for them. And why do you think that is? Do you have that experience yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason that we have those sorts of experiences is because our minds and the natural world evolved together. I, I think we can't really separate the two of them, and, and we too often think that we can. We imagine that our uh, our brains and our inner world are are in some way completely separate from the natural world that they, you know, that gave birth to them in a sense. And mm. I, I think of them as two different, uh, you know, two different components of the same thing. We have an inner mind, and 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 the natural world is is something like an outer mind for us. Mm, that's really beautiful. Um, I'm reading a book right now from one of my teachers called Letters to the River, and he does vision quests. He leads vision quests in different wilderness um, places, and he really talks about, you know, wilderness states, you know, states of being that are expressed through the wilderness. Tell me more about what you think about that, that idea of, you know, sort of the inner mind and the outer mind. Yeah, I think the when we get out into the natural world, it's a completely different uh, emotional and mental, psychological experience from from the human world. So in, in the human world, we kind of replicate the uh, we replicate everything that is uh, comfortable to us as humans. And I think when we get out into the natural world, uh, it is it draws us out of ourselves. It, it one thing that I've, you know, I talk about a little bit in my book and, and that has struck me as a really important idea is, is this notion of the participatory consciousness, which is this idea that when you're in a wild place in particular, you can't really, it's not a good survival technique to just hang out in your own mind and within your own worries. You have to extend your, your consciousness out into the landscape around you in order that you have the, you know, the awareness necessary to, to survive, essentially. And, and I think that participatory consciousness is not only a, it's not only a desperate survival technique, it's also, uh, it's, it's quite simply a different form that consciousness can take. And, and it draws us out into uh, the broadest possible way of seeing and experiencing the world, rather than the narrowest possible way, which you know, it might be something like uh, sitting in your basement playing video games. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so true, right? That the mind can be a very scary and lonely place at times. And, 
you know, in, in so many spiritual traditions, of course, silence and solitude are venerated. And, and I do think that those are very important states, but I think using them together can be a very dangerous thing, silence and solitude. And yet, whenever I've practiced them in nature, it's never been isolating. In fact, I've actually found so much more connection. Now, that isn't to say that it hasn't been scary when I've been alone and out in nature, uh, mm-hmm. but but I I do feel in a very palpable way that I'm so connected to things. I remember when I was on my vision quest that this the planet has a sound. It you know it hums. And, and I remember trying to think, are those bugs all around me? Are, you know, is that the echoes of planes far away that I can't see? But why is it never silent here? So I was always very aware that even though I was in silence and solitude, it was actually quite loud and I felt very, very connected. Um, so I yeah. wanted, so go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I have that, uh, I guess for me, one, one experience that I have that, that that brings to mind is, that sometimes when I'm about to go into the natural world or into the wilderness for, for an extended period of time, even just a week or 10 days or something like that, uh, I'm often fearful of it. And the thing that I fear is that I'm going to be bored, you know, that I'm going to get out there and I won't know how to make use of my time. And then, and then I get there and it, it, it never happens. You know, I, I, I always end up uh, totally engaged and constantly... Um, you know, just really busy in a sense, both in terms of the physical actions of of uh, making my life work in in a wilderness situation, but also my mind is 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 just constantly uh, turning things over, and it turns over different things than it does than it does in the city. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my understanding is that you're an atheist, and. I- and even if that maybe is a misunderstanding, I would describe you as very measured and thoughtful and deliberate when it comes to the idea of spirituality. But I'm curious about whether you've had any experiences in nature that you might consider mystical in nature. Sure. I mean, I, I think the experience of being in nature can often kind of blur the line between uh what could be described as a mystical experience and, and what could be described as, as uh, you know, a more ordinary one. Even just the, uh, the as you say, the experience of, you know, cresting a hill and, and seeing a particular vista and having the feeling that it was, that it was in some way, that the light was in some way painted just so for your particular <laughs> needs at that moment, right? But, but I actually have... Uh, a couple of things. One, one you know, there, there's a couple of experiences that are that are uh, harder for me to explain than that. And one was a time I was camping on a on a beach alone and uh, trying to build a fire in a rainstorm, essentially. <laughs> and uh, and I just kind of had this sense of like, ah, oh, you know, c- couldn't this somehow be made easier? And then. Uh, I looked down the beach and there were a couple of ravens picking sticks for their nest. And, uh, and I went down and, and it was a, you know, there was a, a little stowed away area of dry wood. Under <laughs> some and, uh, and I really did at that moment have the sense that, 
that uh, you know these ravens had had showed me where to find wood to start a fire. Um, maybe even more uh, striking for me was uh, I was in Iceland traveling with my mother one time, and she had lived on the east coast of Canada for 12 years, somehow without ever seeing a puffin, which is this uh, iconic bird of the east coast. She'd never seen one. She'd always wanted to see one. And there are also lots of puffins in Iceland. Uh, so I found myself on a hill basically trying to will the universe to give her a puffin. <laughs> <laughs> and later, that, uh, later on the trip, we walked down to the sea cliff and... and uh, and I just had the sense, well, this is, this is the moment, you know, puff, the puffin has to show up or not. And then a puffin did show up. It flew past the sea cliff and I, I freaked out, <laughs> you know, just kind of screaming. In fact, I was so, uh, so overboard and trying to draw her attention to the puffin that she missed it. <laughs> no, really? But then uh, within about five minutes, there were just dozens and dozens of puffins flying past. And so sometimes, yeah, I mean, you get these things that, you, you know, I could explain them as uh, coincidence uh, in one way or another, but um, but you know, it's uh, I do appreciate the aspect of mystery that sometimes rears its head out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's the mystery that's not meant to be solved, right? Just to be experienced. So I think that's awesome that you <laughs> you were so excited that your mom missed it at first. <laughs> it's perfect. Okay, I'm fascinated because I know you, uh, what does it look like when J.B. McKinnon is trying to will the universe to produce a puffin? Like, were you praying? <laughs> were you visualizing a puffin? Like, what, what is that actually like? Well, I've had a habit since childhood of, of just talking to nature. So uh, I've always done it as long as I can remember. If I go out alone into the woods or, um, or onto a grassland or what have you, stand at the shore alone, then I'm a surprisingly chatty person. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, sometimes it's inner chatter and sometimes it's outward chatter, but I talk to plants and rocks and mushrooms and squirrels and the ocean itself and, and uh, the wind and, and whatever else. And I've always spoken to it in a very ordinary way as though it were a companion. And, uh, and I think that was how I approached it. I was, I was standing on a hill with, you know, these great winds blowing around me and uh, and the wind seemed like <laughs> like the right uh, the right force to to talk to about about the puffins so uh, that's that was my moment to ask oh that's that's magical I love that that's great okay so you're also a very serious rock climber so are you speaking to the mountain or the rock or like what's happening in terms of like if we bring back this idea of participatory consciousness, what's happening when you're rock climbing? Because you've done some like really big climbs and I, I don't know anything about rock climbing, but when you talk about it, it I find it terrifying. And so <laughs> I imagine that what you're doing is a is kind of like an altered state of consciousness. So can you tell me a bit about that? What that's, what's going on in your mind and how are you speaking with nature when you are thousands of feet above the ground? Yeah, I think a couple of different things happen when I'm climbing. One is that uh, it requires a great deal of focus. So you know, it's impossible essentially to, to rock climb while you, while you worry about other things. You just have to be engaged with the act of 
of climbing the rock and and that's meditative unquestionably i mean you uh it is in in many ways similar i think to to emptying your mind through meditation or or other forms of practice and it's it's actually my view that that a lot of uh the sports that people talk about as extreme sports or thrill seeking sports are are attracting people for that very reason you know that when you're paddling down a river when you're skiing down a mountain when you're climbing up a cliff face, uh, you are only doing that one thing. You're in the present. Uh, you're acting primarily in a subconscious rather than a conscious way, and your your day-to-day worries are are somewhere else entirely. There's another aspect to it for climbing. One of the mysteries of climbing, in terms of my participation in it, is is uh, that I grew up in a place where nobody climbed and and I didn't know any climbers and nobody in my family were you know was into rock climbing and uh and my avenue into the sport was actually the cover of a magazine that I saw on a on a drive to visit family with my with my mom uh when I was I think 15 years old and so at a gas station in Saskatchewan, I saw the cover of an outdoors magazine that had a guy climbing on it, and I just said, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and, uh, and I think the re- I've, I've given some thought to this recently of why, why I felt such a, you know, a calling, in a sense, to rock, rock climbing. And I think it had to do with anxiety. I think that uh, uh, I was developing you know, what, uh, what would be called anxiety disorder these days, and um, and I was looking at rock and seeing something that was so immovable and so permanent and so uh, unflappable, <laughs> and sort of everything that I was that I was slowly, uh, you know, turning. I was turning into the opposite of all of those things, and uh, and I saw an anchor. You know, I saw something that that I could, uh, you know, something. Some uh, I saw the opportunity to actually be able to lay my hands on on something that would calm and and literally ground me and mm-hmm. i really think that's what you know a large part of my attraction to rockland wow that's amazing um i'm just thinking about that idea of grounding yourself um but also you talked about the focus that it takes. And, you know, I think, you know, who feels anxiety are people who avoid stuff. And so when you're rock climbing and you're totally present and there's really nothing that you can avoid, I mean, that would be, I would imagine in some cases, life-threatening if you were being, um, you know, uh, um, hesitant or apprehensive, you know, you sort of have to act with decisiveness. And so when you're on that rock face and you're that present and you are connecting to the place where you're feeling really grounded, what is it like in your mind? Like, do you feel peace? Do you feel calm? Or are you really just thinking about the next technical aspect? Do you ever pause and sort of look around or does that take your focus away it's it's a really it's a variable experience but it the experience is always pursuing a particular uh a 
particular form of experience. So sometimes I'm climbing and I'm and I'm just scared. <laughs> you know, it certainly happens that uh, that you get yourself into a situation where um, your head may be clear of your day to day worries, but but you are still finding yourself uh, struggling in some way or another. But the the thing that I think people are always pursuing in a sport like rock climbing is flow and. Mm. The flow state is that perfect state where you are completely present, you're comfortable in the moment, uh, your brain feels essentially completely liberated. I don't think there's any conscious focus occurring at all, and everything just feels easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you're, it, it is just that kind of dreamlike quality of being, um, well, in one one situation where I, where where I really had a strong flow experience climbing, I was uh, climbing up this long crack, and the movements were all basically the same because the crack had the same shape all the way up. So I was able to fall into this very rhythmic pattern. I was pretty comfortable with the with the challenge level, and I got to a point where I couldn't really tell anymore whether I was right side up climbing up a mountain or upside down climbing down a mountain <laughs> and it didn't matter you know i just had this sense of of uh, flowing out of myself entirely and into you know into the uh, into the wider cosmos in a sense and that that is that perfect experience that that people pursue not only in climbing but again i think in other sports like like kayaking or skiing or even mountain biking things like this that my feeling is that that is what people are chasing above and beyond this uh, kind of television advertisement stereotype of thrills. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. Okay, I want to ask you about a very specific aspect of your book, The Once and Future World. In this book, which I, I know this, I've, I've already told you this, and I know you know this because everybody who's read this book tells you, it's a very important book. And it's so beautifully written, like really the language and the descriptions you use are just so gorgeous. It reminds me of sort of the the great romantic writers talking about nature. It's just beautiful. But the point that I think is so compelling in it that you talk about is this idea of a wilder way of being human. So rewilding, what I'm taking from the book, isn't just about introducing or reintroducing um, you know, different animals into, uh, you know, original landscapes, etc. But you talk about humans learning how to live among nature in a different way. Can you expand on that for me? Because I find that just a really compelling idea when you really play it out. Yeah, I think it's, it's this idea that there's a feedback loop in play between the natural world and, and human, between nature and culture, I guess is the simplest way to put it. And, and we we tend to think of it as really only moving in one direction that that we make human cultural changes to the natural landscape but when we change the natural landscape we're we're changing the nature of what's feeding back to us from nature mm-hmm. so each time we we make a a change to nature i think we're changing ourselves and so an example of that would be uh living with or without large predators in our midst. So if, uh, if we're living 
on a landscape where a walk in the woods might result in an, in an encounter with a, a grizzly bear or a lion or a leopard or what have you, depending on where you are in the world, um, you're going to be a different kind of person. You're going to spend some of your time thinking in, in quite a different way and experiencing the world in quite a different way, using your senses in a very different way than you would in the absence of those bears and lions and leopards. And, and I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a very simplified example, but these sorts of things are happening at, at every level as we change the natural world. You know, the experience of, of uh, what, one of my favorite uh, passages when I was doing research for the book was the description of this, of this young man uh, who paddled out just to listen to whales breathe at the surface of the ocean in the, in the bay that he lived in. And, you know, the experience of growing up where you might row out and listen to whales breathe compared to the experience of growing up, uh, you know, in, uh, on a downtown waterway where all you ever see are, you know, uh, people in motorboats, it's dramatically different and, and changes, you know, those, those sorts of experiences, I think, uh, we can pro probably all understand it, at least at a gut level that those things make us different people. And uh, the, the way I think of it is the, you can't really imagine what you would be like if you grew up with different parents entirely, right? We have, we have the experience of growing up that we have, and it's very hard to imagine what we ourselves would be if we grew up in completely different circumstances. And I think it's, it's very similar in terms of the natural world. Uh, we grow up with a particular version of nature. It's difficult for us to picture what it, you know, how, how we would be different if we grew up in a different version of nature, but I think we can understand that we would, in fact, be very different. How do we embody the wilder way of being human, and how do we begin to participate in creating a more natural world? Right. Well, I, I have uh, kind of my, my three steps from, from the book, which are, you know, I summarize as remember, reconnect, rewild. And the remembering part is really about uh, trying to relearn what the natural world can be like and was like in the past. Uh, and it's very important, I think, to do that in order to, to get a real sense of, of what nature is, you know, what nature can actually look like, how different it can be from what we know today. So that's the first step. The, the step of reconnection, I think, is, is really critical because in order for us to want to live in, any, in a wilder world, we have to feel connected to it. We have to, we have to fall in love with it again, in a sense. And, and uh, reconnection can be as simple as as spending half an hour a, a, a day, uh, even just walking the streets of a neighborhood, but paying attention not to the human activity around you, but the, the birds and the insects, what the plants are doing, how things are responding to the seasons and phases of the moon, these sorts of things. And then I think it's finally once we've taken those two steps that we can really talk seriously about rewilding, because People who are connected, people who have a sense of the natural world will want to rewild. They'll want to live in a wilder world. They'll want to be a part of a wilder world. 
Absolutely. And I, I, it's not a spoiler for me to bring this part up, but at the end of the book, you have a little story of a woman who has an encounter with a mama grizzly bear and the three cubs, and she gets swiped by this grizzly bear. And she really, I mean, she, I think, embodies what the whole book is about when she finally says at the end, you know, it was a really spiritual experience for me. It felt like coming home. It was just a beautiful end to a beautiful book. Thank you so much for writing it. And thanks for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm so glad I finally got to record one of my conversations with James. James is the author of The Once and Future World, and he's also co-author of The 100-Mile Diet. For the gem today, the takeaway from this conversation, I want to read to you from The Once and Future World. James writes, To many, the idea of paying deliberate attention to nature may sound ridiculously old-fashioned. So is breathing, I suppose. An awareness of nature is not first and foremost a sentimental or spiritual practice, but a profoundly realistic one, a way of binding ourselves to the simple truth that human beings depend on ecological systems for our survival. Awareness is a countercurrent to the feedback loop of modern life. Pay attention, and we will value nature more. When we value nature more, we work harder to reverse its declines. Reverse the decline in variety and abundance, and nature becomes steadily more fascinating, more spectacular, and more meaningful. Awareness can be its own reward. One particularly endless February, when the gray and damp of the season had crept into life itself, and good news seemed to have gone out of fashion, I noticed that the heads and necks of the glaucous-winged gulls were changing almost overnight, from the smudged brown of winter to the waiter's apron white of breeding season. The traditional harbinger of spring at northern latitudes, the first robin, was weeks away, but here was a more subtle, much earlier sign that, yes, one day the sun would again beat down upon our backs. There's much to be gained and nothing to lose in these small acts of reconnection. Love that. Today's show notes can be found on my blog at carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. That's where you'll find links to learn more about today's topic and James and his books. I want to thank James again, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate your review on iTunes, and please share it far and wide so it can reach more seekers like you. You never know who really needs to hear it now. If you'd like to keep exploring the great mystery of life with me, you can go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, and click the link for The Numinous School, my online intuition program. And while you're there, sign up for my monthly email newsletter. You'll instantly receive a meditation download, and you'll get something free from me every month. Until next time, take care. <laughs>